0: Amidst the shadows, sorrow's call. Blessed are those who mourn in all whose hearts are heavy, burden torn, in grief's embrace, they are reborn. Through tear-stained eyes and anguished cries, they navigate the darkest skies, where pain and loss, like ocean waves, crash upon souls in somber graves. In mourning's depth, they find a way to seek the light in darkest day. For in the darkness, seeds are sown of wisdom's tree that's yet unknown. The tears they shed, like morning dew, nourish the roots of love anew, and from the soil of broken dreams, a fragrant bloom begins to gleam. Blessed are they who mourn the past, whose memories linger, shadows cast, for in remembrance they embrace the echoes of a cherished face. In grief's procession they may weep, yet tender hearts their treasure keep. For every year that they release holds memories that bring them peace. With open hearts and arms outstretched, they offer solace to the wretched. In quiet presence they impart the healing balm that soothes the heart. Blessed are those who mourn and wail whose tears, like rivers, never fail. For through the clouds they glimpse the sun, a hope that whispers, life's not done. In mournful tones and somber skies, a strength within the broken lies. For in the depths of pain's abyss, they find the courage to persist. So let us honor those who mourn, their spirits brave, their hearts forlorn. For in their tears, a sacred art, a testament to love's own
1: Before we get to the message today, am I coming through? Go. Before we get to the message today, I want to go ahead and shout out real quick, once again, for one more time, just the people who really helped create these videos. The first of which is Maribel Rivera, who wrote all the poetry. And then a big thank you to Jason Davis, who did the editing for these. And then, of course, we have so many E3ers like... Darren today, who volunteered to read the poem. So thank you to each of those. These have been amazing. I'm excited to see these throughout the entirety of this series. And now with that, let's get into the message, which I want to kick off by telling y'all about something that's happened lately with my daughter, Audie, who just turned four, by the way. I'm dying. We know. Yeah. You see, she's hit this developmental milestone where she's physically capable of transversing many places in a given day while simultaneously mentally capable of actually remembering things, which is combined to give her this immense capacity to lose stuff, remember that she has done so, and then experience utter grief of the most radical form. You see, previously, she would lose something and then have distracted for like two seconds. She would literally like that, completely forget about it, never for it to come up again. And it was glorious, and that was my life, and I loved it. And alas no more, because now what she'll do is she'll find, say, a stick at the park, drop it, get home, and then out of nowhere ask where's my stick before collapsing in despair. When informed, it's gone. And no, we will not drive 30 minutes back to the park to get it. It's like watching her learn to grieve for the first time, every time, over and over again. There's wailing, she begins moving on, she remembers it's gone again, wailing recommences, wash, repeat, 50 times a day. It's insane. It's insanity, right? But, you see, when I get past my frustration over talking about a lost stick for the 500th time, as if the stakes of the world rested on finding it, I actually find this to be an incredibly relatable experience. Because for one, I'm actually notorious about losing stuff. Uh, it's, my wife and I have a, a running bit in our house that she has bought me a rosary about 80,000 times for Christmas because every year, like clockwork, I lose it. If you have been to the alligator farm on any hike in Florida, you have probably found one of my most prized possessions. But more than that, and more serious than that, I also relate to this because I think it captures something that I've just struggled with my entire life. Life, which is this universal human experience of accepting that something can be just gone. From losing toys to breakups to failure to death, I have always struggled with accepting loss. And I know I'm not alone. Loss is fundamentally the most disorienting human experience that there is. That's because we all like to think that we have more control than we actually do. Believing deep down that when push comes to shove, we can always fix things if we really apply our will to it. Who knows what I'm talking about? This is especially true with the most critical parts of our lives, right? our loved ones, our core relationships, our comforts, our prized possessions, our careers, sticks that we find at the park, whatever. To maintain our sanity in this world, we imagine life's potential hardships is only ever causing these minor, sometimes major, tears in what we cherish most, right? Like sure, they may break, but we can always tape it back together a little bit of glue and elbow grease, we can fix this sucker. We can get it back to at least an approximation of what it used to be, which is often true with a great many things. But y'all, not with true loss. Not with irreversibly fractured relationships. Not with destroyed life paths. Permanently broken bodies. Not with death. No, y'all... Real loss viscerally disabuses us of such delusions, does it not? Forcing us to face what we often try to admit on a daily basis, which is the impermanence of even the most cherished parts of our life. Because real loss isn't a tear. It is a consuming fire, is it not? It's not about well, just enough glue, we could fix this. It's not about put some tape and elbow grease on it and it'll all go back to normal, is it? No, loss is that consuming fire that swallows up what's touched and leaves behind only that feeling that we all know, which is that something's just not right in this world anymore. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Dropping us into that haunting, painful space where all we can do is grapple like Audie, with our powerlessness, accept reality as it is, and then mourn what's gone. You've been there, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't been, I got bad news, you will be one day, because that's just part of being human in this world. Who's uplifted? (laughs) Happy Sunday, I'll see you guys next week, right? It's a bummer, I know. Pastor Mike always gets the sad ones. (laughs) But loss and mourning, these things are part of the human condition. Thus, we have to talk about it. We can't just ignore it. We can't just act like that's not the case. More so, what I want to pause for you today is it's actually really good news. that The Bible and Jesus want to talk about these things too. That they don't just ignore the hardest parts of this life. They actually confront them directly. As we'll see in today's passage, where Jesus is going to grapple with both right in their face as we continue through our series on the Beatitudes, these upside-down blessings that start the Sermon on the Mount from the Gospel of Matthew, blessings that, as we saw last week, began with blessed are the poor in spirit, but for, before continuing with today's Beatitude, which is blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And for me, this beatitude really actually encapsulates how these beatitudes often seem so simple at first, right? Like, oh, Jesus loves and comforts sad people. Huzzah! (laughs) Until you actually think about them for like two seconds, and you start realizing that they're kind of more complex than that, right? Because as Scott mentioned, many of us think that blessed means getting good stuff from God, but wait, haven't people in mourning lost something good? that they perceived as coming from God. Well, that can't be it then. So, okay, well then maybe it means this. Maybe it means if we do these things, we will get blessed by God, right? But do people earn good stuff from God by being sad? Have you gone into this world lately? Have you seen the tragedy of this place? Have you gone to a war-torn country? Is that how this world works? No. And are we cursed, if happy, if that's the case? Is God going to punish us if we experience joy? Suddenly, this beatitude ain't so simple, is it? It's actually quite complicated. And I think in that, it highlights what Scott said in week one, this thing that we always must remember as we engage the beatitudes throughout this series, which is that getting stuff from God is not how Jesus defines being blessed. To understand why, recall the context of these. Recall that these Beatitudes follow Jesus' pronouncement of the kingdom of God, that it has arrived through him to turn everything upside down, to set our world right again. Which Jesus then began enacting with healings and teachings and provision, drawing in who? Was it the rich, powerful elite who benefit from how this world currently operates? Did they want this place to get turned upside down by God? No, of course not. It drew in the sick, the poor, the lost, the marginalized, the broken, the ignored, those beaten down by this world, the poor in spirit. That's who heard Jesus' message, recognized their need, and moved towards him. And for Jesus, that's the definition of being blessed. It's not getting more stuff. Rather, it's to come into the proximity of God to draw closer to the one who gives life, to draw closer to Jesus and by grace enter into his restoring present, into his upside-down kingdom. That's being blessed. And that's the point of these Beatitudes. It's Jesus looking at these crowds of people that our world have called the least important, the most easily discardable, the farthest from God. And him saying to them, the world's got it wrong. In God's eyes, you are the blessed ones. You have been invited into the kingdom first. Thus, here, understand, Jesus is not saying mourn to earn blessings, or he's not saying, hey, suffering and loss is inherently a good thing that's going to bring you closer to God, so you should do more of that. That's not the point. No, he's encouraging this crowd of people in mourning at the bottom of society, that somehow, some way in their experience of loss, God's actually drawing closer to them. Which is a beautiful but also alien sentiment for many of us. Because who, like me, when grieving, doesn't really feel close to God in such spaces? Does anyone here actually feel like God is closest to you in the moment after the most precious thing in your life is gone, after you lose a loved one, after the worst thing you can imagine happens to you? Isn't it easier in such moments to feel like God is absent or even angry with us, that he's abandoned us? Isn't it easier to ask, where are you, God? In such spaces. Am I the only one? Yet this beatitude turns it upside down. It rejects that. Raising the question, what then does it mean that we are blessed, that God has come proximate to us when we are mourning? And how on earth does that offer comfort to those weeping? That's what I want to explore today. And to do so, I want to turn to a story that I think just speaks profoundly to this one that I've taught on more than once here before and quite frankly think the church should teach on every single year. And that is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But first, let me set the scene. You see, after this sermon, Jesus transverses Israel proclaiming God's kingdom, which produces not peace, but conflict. Because unsurprisingly, a homeless man claiming to be God's Messiah who preaches that the bottom of society is actually the top of the world and that God's closest to those who are not in power did not sit well with those who are in power. Shocker, I know. And with that message, he just increasingly comes into these moments of conflict with the most powerful people of his day, leading to this inevitable collision with the religious and political institutions of the Roman Empire, which takes place as he arrives in Jerusalem for Passover and leads to this ultimate final confrontation that in mere days ends with Jesus's rejection, torture, and execution on a Roman cross. And with that disaster looming, what we find is that Matthew in his gospel depicts Jesus's final night, where after sharing one final meal with his disciples, with his best friends, and predicting his imminent demise, Jesus goes off to prepare himself for what's coming. We're gonna pick up in Matthew 26, 36, where we read, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So, In this garden called Gethsemane, Jesus takes his two closest friends aside to pray. And what happens? He becomes, it says, intensely sorrowful, troubled, and overwhelmed, which the English doesn't actually capture. It doesn't capture the intensity of how upset Jesus is. The best description of this I have heard comes from the teacher, Tim Mackey, who calls this a panic attack. He's so overcome with grief, that he can't even process his terror beyond comparing it to dying. He's so distraught that he can only think to ask for one thing, which is what? For his friends to stay awake, to be present with him. He just doesn't want to be alone. Does anyone find that relatable? Y'all, this is one of the most relatable stories in the whole Bible, but it's also a shocking image. Because if you've been reading this gospel so far, until this point, Jesus has been absolutely unshakable. Yes, at times he gets angry or sad. He has these emotions, but he's always in control. He's always composed. He is always rock solid until we hit this scene and then bang. He just falls apart. It's wild. It blows your mind as you read through the text. Let's continue. Verse 39. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus goes off alone and falls face first onto the ground. Anyone ever felt such grief before that your body just gives out? Anyone ever lied on the ground because you just can't get up and face the reality of your life? Jesus too. Jesus too. He's been there. I mean, he just collapses in mourning. And this was pointed out to me, but this isn't Jesus suddenly realizing that he's going to die, is it? He's predicted that multiple times already in Matthew. No, what we're witnessing here is Jesus's heart catching up with his head. That moment where despite knowing that a loss is imminent, that it's coming, we only actually feel it when it arrives that uncontrollable wave of grief that you can't prepare for, that you just have to ride when it hits. And in that, what's Jesus do? He prays, right? He turns to prayer. Combining the Lord's prayer, which he taught his disciples with a processing of his current experiences and all together, you just get this image of Jesus that I think is powerful. He doesn't know what he needs other than to not be alone. His emotions overwhelm him. His body gives out and all he can do is pray this simple prayer, Abba, this intimate name for God like Papa, Papa, you love me. You're the God of the universe. You can do anything. Anything. So maybe, possibly, could you take this suffering from me? I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through this. God, surely there is another way. (sighs) Verse 40, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them. What? Sleeping. You had one job. Because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. So next, Jesus returned seeking comfort from his friends, and they've fallen asleep on him. They're no comfort at all. So instead, he goes off again and prays the same thing twice more, which I want you to consider that. Would Jesus pray the same thing three times if God answered with a yes, saying, sure, Jesus, you got it. That cup, consider it taken. Yes or no? No. Think about that. That means that in Gethsemane, for the first time in his entire life, Jesus reaches out to God with a request and received, not more stuff, not changed circumstances, but seemingly deafening silence. Papa, surely there's another way. Crickets. It's this moment of true uncertainty, fear, grief, this dark night of the soul where if you've been human long enough, you've been there, where he must respond and experience the seeming silence of God, leaving him with a choice that God knows only he can make for himself to end this mourning over yet another tragedy of this broken world, either give up despair or Trust, to assume God's absent or remember his story, remember who God has always been, and in that remembering, choose to stay faithful in circumstances he would never have chosen, that he does not want, but still must face nonetheless. And what's Jesus do? Does he give up or trust? He trusts, closing simply but profoundly with not my will, but your will be done. And check this out. Verse 45, Matthew closes. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Is Jesus still on his face at the end of this scene? No. He rises and emerges ready, confident again. He has the serenity about him, right? He's ready to face it. He's ready to go. He's ready to accept his calling. Y'all, this is so powerful. Jesus doesn't deny his pain. He mourns it fully. We just watched him do it. He processes his emotions as they were in the moment until eventually through prayer, he remembers who God is. And in that, he can accept his terrifying, painful, unchangeable circumstances and, in trust, answer his calling. I don't want this. But, Abba, I know you love me. I know that you're with me even now because you have always been with me. My life isn't about me. It's about your kingdom. (sighs) Okay. Your will be done. Let's go. Y'all, I want you to consider this. Jesus doesn't tell us how to mourn, he showed us. And that's so important. If you, like me, know this scene intimately, I've watched this fire consume what I have loved countless times, with the death of childhood classmates, with family members passing away before their time, with my best friend dying in a car crash when I was 24, with the death of my sponsor this past year, I have seen this scene. I have lived this scene with the obliteration and the ruination of my identity because of addiction, with the absolute destruction of the future I imagined in my 20s because I had imbalanced brain chemistry completely outside of my control. I have felt this with witnessing the countless endings of relationships, hopes, and dreams, the witnessing in just my short life, war, famine, disease, natural disasters, refugee crisis, economic and environmental collapse, and on and on and on the list of this world's tragedies go. And I say all of that not to act like I'm uniquely acquainted with mourning, but to highlight the exact opposite, that each of us, if I bet you $100, would say that you have your own list of uncontrollable, unchangeable, personal, and corporate tragedies that have left you in a space where all you could do is weep. Am I wrong? Has anyone else been here before? This is what it means to be human. And in such spaces, who has asked, where are you, God? Why is this happening? Take this cup from me, only to receive what feels like silence when things still didn't go your way. Yo, that's why Gethsemane's is essential. It changes everything that Jesus went through this dark night of the soul to, just like us. Because that means that in our Gethsemane moments, where everything feels like too much and our friends have fallen asleep on us and that wave of grief rises over our heads that in such moments, this story reveals that Jesus is anything but absent. In such moments... When we collapse in grief, face down in mourning over this world's tragedies, we are actually joining ourselves to the very heart of this God who is well acquainted with sorrow and tears. This God who has told us that he will make things right. That in that space, Jesus promises he's there, present, awake, whispering you're not alone. The God of restoration is drawing close to you right now. And I can tell you from experience that he can resurrect life from what we with trembling call death. Can I get an Amen. Y'all, this God can redeem what you're going through too. And only that loving presence has ever comforted my mourning. It alone has ever freed me to rise from what has broken me, saying, not my will, but your will be done. It alone has ever given me hope in the midst of loss. In the midst of that fire. And To close, I just want to address anyone currently mourning for any reason right now. Maybe you failed. Maybe you've lost someone, or a relationship. Maybe a hurricane destroyed your life. Maybe you faced literally the worst thing you could have ever imagined. You're somehow still here. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what you're going through, but I need you to hear me gethsemane cries out to you that you can know definitively that in that very space of grief that you are kneeling with jesus and that he is kneeling right next to you that he's been there he's felt your pain he's present there too that right now he's drawing as close to you as the very breath that you need to cry out where are you god that even if all you can do is weep jesus still calls you blessed not because you get stuff or because losing is somehow a pathway to God and it's inherently good. No, no, no. But because he's with you and he's embracing you right where you're at, even if it doesn't feel like it. If you're mourning, then that's all I need you to hear. You are loved. You are not alone. God and this community are with you. Can I get an amen, E3? However, when you're ready, I need you to also hear. But Jesus and the story offers a path forward too. One that I'm sorry to say is going to require of you the hardest step of faith that is possible in mourning, which is to move. And I know that's easier said than done. Y'all have been there. Jesus has been there. I get that that's the thing about grief, that when you are in it, it feels like it will never leave, that it will have the last word on your life. But through Gethsemane and this beatitude, Jesus declared definitively that's not true, that there is always hope because Jesus promises that in this story of these cosmos, God will comfort those who mourn. Which doesn't mean escaping suffering. Did Jesus escape suffering after Gethsemane? No, No, I got bad news. It's going to mean going through it, but knowing the core of your being God is with you in that space too. Now, see, this is about the comfort of trust, of knowing that the God of Gethsemane is also the God of resurrection and Easter morning. And he has promised to one day restore all things, including what you're going through. And until then, you can trust fully that he is present, that he is working within, that he is seeking to comfort our morning too, even if that means things still not going the way we had hoped or wanted them to. That's what lets Jesus accept, name, feel, process, and surrender his grief while trusting his Abba to resurrect new life from even this. And that's how Jesus rises in faith to say, not my will, but your will be done. That's our model for blessed mourning. And y'all, with it, in Jesus' presence, we don't have to deny, ignore, numb, perpetuate our pain onto others. Instead, we too can face it, accept it, mourn it, trust within it, all without thinking that in some way changes God's love for us or that our Abba is absent. Y'all, through that, we can surrender our pain and our tragedies and watch Jesus redeem them too into conduits of his comfort to a broken world. Going into this mourning world with a simple prayer, not my will, but your will be done. And y'all, that is good news. Amen. Amen? Amen? Let's worship.